It's not calling you Josh Frydenberg, it's calling you Dosh Frydenberg. Under the coalition, taxes for hard-working Australians will always be lower. You know, I, I don't hold a hose, mate, and I, I don't sit here and control They're answers that only can come from Victoria, I'm afraid, because that's not my job. But well, I ain't spending any time, because in the meantime, every three months, a person is torn to pieces by a crocodile in North Queensland. Well, g'day, listeners, and welcome once again to The Two Jacks, uh, episode 60, but we've been around a lot longer than that. Um, but this is episode 60 where we talk about matters, Australian politics and media, etc., and then move around the world to see what's going on there. And joining me, as usual, is Hong Kong Jack. G'day, mate. How are you? I'm excellent. There you go. Uh, how's Hong Kong at the moment? Very cool? Uh, it's cool and clammy. Um, uh, we, we, I'm, you know, can't, be, can't ca- be both. Uh, it can be, actually. Um, uh, it can still be clammy. Um, it's... Uh, climate change. Yeah, well, Chinese New Year coming up in ten days' yes, time. Yes, indeed. Uh, uh, so many uh, public holidays. Many public holidays. Yes, we like a public holiday here. Um, so you know the the guys at our building management are starting to gather all little trees and decorations and things, get them set up. So all good. All right. Yes, that expectation is is, is it as good uh, as uh, your childhood Christmases, Jack? Is that that same sort of sense of expectation there? Well, the guys at our building management do a fabulous job. They rather like the challenge of doing that for both Christmas and for Chinese New Year. So, yes, it is pretty good. What do you have to do? do you, is it some sort of cookie that you give people? Um, yeah, no, That's one no, of the things. It's no mooncakes. So there are some cookies they give people, and, and those are appearing in the shops. Um, uh, there's all sorts of... Arcane, and the red envelopes, of course. Uh, arcane rituals and the red the red envelopes, yeah. yeah well, yeah. may your red envelopes be bursting, Jack, Roger Rogerson style, um, yeah, well, and coming in a brown paper bag. No, I, I'm way too old to get a red envelope. It's only supposed to go to single people or young, young people, yes, and I'm neither. Works. All right, something to look forward to there, Jack. Let's kick off. Uh, with the, uh, I guess, the prevailing political story at the moment, the tax cuts and broken promises uh, angle. And we've got a bit of a letter uh, from our very loyal listener, um, baseman Ray, uh, who sent us this. The biggest lie, which on average costs families $3,000 a year, is GST, of course, who said, when John Howard famously said, no, there's no way that a GST will ever be part of our policy. Uh, the journalist said, never, ever. Howard said, never, ever. It's dead. It was killed by the voters in the last election. Well, of course, it wasn't. Now, he was talking, I'm presuming that's the 93 election where it was killed. Uh, and then, of course, it became a, an election issue in 1998 with uh, Howard scraping through uh, with just a handful of seats. Um I'm not sure that we could call that a broken promise, Jack. I mean, many people would. Um, but uh, he actually went to the people with the policy uh, after uh, John Hewson's GST was uh, was knocked over uh, by Paul Keating in 93. Yeah, he did go back to the people and say, look, we've changed our mind. Um, we are now promoting a GST um, uh, and, and, and if you elect us, we will, we will put it into place. So, yes, it's a little bit different. Look, I... Politically, how do I see it? Um, I think the tax cuts play well, um, uh, but there's always a little bit of damage with um, a reneging on a on, on a commitment. 
But wait, Jack, because Ray has got more. Because uh, he talked about planting a billion trees. I think I think Corky actually made that made that first announcement, the, the billion trees uh, planting. But it was also uh, something I think that the uh, Morrison government. Uh, offered in 2019, and there was also the building of 47 commuter car parks, which I don't think any of them ever got built, maybe a couple, not many. Uh, uh, Ray goes on to remind us that Morrison promised to create 1.3 million jobs in five years, never happened. That job creation stuff is always bogus, isn't it, by the way? It's always because jobs are going to be created naturally in the the economy. Uh, It it doesn't take into account how many jobs have been lost. It just means how many jobs have been, essentially, how many people have found new jobs or gone into work for the first time. It's like being a PR company where you invariably um, send people an invoice and claim credit for the sun coming up in the morning. But wait, there's more, Jack. Uh, Morrison and then Attorney General Christian Porter. Uh, I haven't read this, so I'm doing a quick scan just before we go on so we don't get in any trouble. Announced the government would set up a Federal Integrity Commission in December 2018. Hmm, that never happened. Morrison promised new laws to prevent discrimination on the basis of faith in 2019. Never happened. And it remains... Of course, a major. Uh, uh, I guess it's 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 one of those sort of skull and crossbones issues for the Albanese government at the moment, um, and uh, a, a difficult thing that that, that uh, uh, both uh, both uh, political parties in government are happy enough to kick down the road. Um, but wait, Jack, there's more in the 2019 budget. The Morrison, um, the Morrison, uh, the Morrison government claimed he would deliver a surplus the following year, meaning it would save rather than lose money for the first time in 12 years. I won't go on because there is a free, state, a free set of steak knives at the end of this. Um, but yes, I guess uh, what Ray is saying is that po- politicians do occasionally tell a few porkies, Jack, and sometimes very big ones. They do. Um, the difficulty with, with this situation is that the tax cuts were legislated. They weren't just promised. The, um, the tax cuts, um, the, the, as set out and agreed by Labor in the Morrison years, were actually legislated, and it's going to require legislation to remove them. Yes. Um, and it was done on the basis that uh, the, the first tranche, the second tranche benefited part of the community, and the third group would have to wait um, until June this year. Um, and that's a kind of a bigger reneging than we would normally see. As I say, there are, there are some costs on, on reneging, um, but the actual tax cuts as they, as they put them are probably going to be quite popular. I would think, yes, I agree with that. I would think that probably it's not worth looking at polling till around about July and August when those tax cuts start uh, hitting pockets, Jack. Yeah, too early to say. I'd agree with that. Yeah, so there's going to be – you're probably going to see the the loss of skin over the next couple of months and and then 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 you may see a completely different response and I I think it's probably best to wait until that. What we did see is an essential poll. I don't know if you saw it, Jack, the essential report, um, and uh, that showed a fairly significant uh, uh, group of Australians, 70-odd percent uh, off the top of my head, who supported – the tax cuts as the, as they've been rolled as out, a, as amended by the, as amended by the current government. Yeah, or that's as, correct. As proposed amendment. Yeah, that's correct. So, R- rather, than, rather than the tax cuts that are actually in the legislation now. 
which weren't popular, uh, as it turned out, it, it, according to the essential report. Um, what I thought was odd, Jack, I mean, I, and I, I actually have put this down. I mean, you know, Albanese and Chalmers and others will say uh, we are doing this uh, to provide support, economic support, financial support for for working Australians um, battling with cost of living pressures. You know, they're going to sort of spew that out. Mm. like a mantra, um, and, <clears throat> and the opposition's re- re- response, while it may not be of, uh, of serious sort of uh, politics so far, I, I actually believe these tax cuts are designed you know, definitely to give uh, the most people who are low and middle-income earners uh, a, a benefit, so it'll give a large group of, large cohort of working Australians a benefit, um, so it makes it very difficult. It's a wedge, I think. It's a it's a strong wedge for for the opposition and something for them to be cautious about around their response. Now I saw Susan Lay, the deputy leader of the opposition, um, uh, talking um, uh, on uh, we're recording on uh, Thursday, the first of February. Uh, she was speaking to the media on Tuesday, the uh, uh, the thirtieth. And uh, she was saying that we will fight this in the parliament, and uh, and then it got to Peter Dutton who said, "Well, I haven't figured out my response yet." So I can only mm. amuse, I can only assume that there might have been a fairly frank exchange of views between uh, the leader of the opposition and Susan Lay, who seems to be making government policy on the run, mate. Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, opposition policy on the run. This is the Susan with about twenty four S's in her name, isn't it? Um, oh, well, just just the three. Yeah, just the three. Um, yeah, I, I I should think, tactically speaking, um, uh, Dutton will want to take as much skin off as he can on the reneging of the policies, yeah. and then reluctantly then vote quietly in voted three. Yes, yeah. That's 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 uh, that's the only uh, for me. That's the only way they can handle this strategically, mm. uh, and um, and and so they need to be very cautious about being loose-lipped in front of the media, as Susan Lay clearly yeah. was. Um, because this is, I mean, uh, Albanese and Chalmers and the, and, the, and the government will will explain this away as a, you know, assisting with the cost of living pressures, mm. blah, 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 blah. But really it is designed to wedge the electorate. I think your comment too last week that it was almost an acknowledgement, yeah, we didn't have a great year last year, so let's get out the front foot Let's establish a narrative and work and work along that. I think that's oh, a big yeah. part yeah, of I mean, the tax cuts too. I mean, they wouldn't have been calling caucus members back for special caucus meetings if they had a good year last year. This is what we want you to say. Yeah, here's the yeah. dot points here. Follow yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a that, that's a that's a real indication of just how good a year um, the opposition had. That they were, you know, they are out there trying to push, develop, and push a new narrative to get back in front. Yes, indeed. Now, the NDIS is almost always in the news, Jack. It's it's a revolutionary scheme. Uh, it's designed to put people with disabilities, provide them with better care, better security, get them into work. Um, but the, the 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 cost of this is is starting to really loom large to the point where it's it's becoming bigger than the health budget for for the federal government, Jack. It is. Um- uh, this often happens with new schemes. You know, don't forget that um, uh, Medicare took a couple of iterations before it became a workable operation. Really, a, a long time, a long term, sustainable operation. The worrying thing about this, uh, the current figures are that 
think there are 610,000 Australians who are in receipt of um, some benefit from NDIS. Yes, but that's 300, correct. 313,000 of those are under the age of 18. Um, and that, to me, suggests that something's going awfully wrong. Well, I think there are particular issues. And I, look, I, 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 I hazard uh, or I'm concerned about putting my, putting my views forward as, as in any way expert on this. But I think, for example, that there are much higher levels of diagnosis of um, uh, uh, spectrum uh, 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 type um, uh, conditions. So, oh, people on the autism spectrum, you mean? Yes, that's right. That there are there are far more diagnoses now, and that's not to say that 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 that, that medicos are getting this wrong. It's to say that there are better tools of diagnosis that have not been available in the past. So we may see some sort of blowout there. Yeah, I, I just don't think um, uh, it, it's workable if you've got half of the people. This was this was not really designed to look after teenagers. This was really designed to look after the um, uh, the elderly and the infirm and the um, uh, obviously disabled. Um, and if you expand um, the catchment of people who are eligible to to have half of them who are teenagers. Um, then you've got a budget problem that you can't get rid of. Yeah, indeed. Now, Guy Thorburn, he is the Australian government actuary, uh, yep. which is kind of like a bookmaker, isn't it, Jack? Explain to me what an actuary is. It's a, it's a man who works through probabilities, isn't he? It is. Um, uh, it's a, a mysterious beast. Um, it I is. Can never it's I a can real never guild. Isn't it? It's, it's a very closed shop of actuaries around Australia. Yeah, I can never quite actually quite work out what they were talking about when they they're were kind of mathematicians. So, so we're yeah. both lost, aren't we? We're we're, yeah. we're we're not going to understand that. As as a litigator, we had to use them from time to time, and I'd read their reports in complete bewilderment. But you know, <laughs> mathematics again, Jack. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, the Australian government actually, Guy Thorburn, has predicted the number of participants in the NDIS scheme would double uh, to 1.2 million, so up from 610,000 to 1.2 million by, I guess, 2033 or 2034. Uh, and his warnings of a more than doubling of the scheme size as a proportion of GDP demonstrate the challenge of capping its runaway growth. Um, yeah. He also said the number of child participants with developmental challenges was showing no signs of abatement. I, I would expect that's increasing rather than the other way around. Um, so it's it's a big job for for uh, Wee Billy. Isn't it? Really? Uh, yeah, it's a it, it's a real back to the drawing board um, uh, and work out what the, the the country can afford to pay, and you're going to have to make some hard decisions to target the people who it was designed to help. Indeed, yes. Um, I had a bit of chat to my wife about this to see what she thought over the weekend. Of course, as we record this, or last weekend uh, around the Australia Day. Um, uh, celebrations and, and uh, commemorations, one way or another. Uh, there was a group of uh, a group of Nazis, or well, they're, they're known as the National Socialist Network, assembling in Artarman, Jack. Did you see that Artarman? Yeah, I had no uh, idea. It's like it's like the uh, 
It's like the Bavarian beer halls around there, apparently. Um, Tarman's a lovely little suburb. Um, got a got a nice railway station. Very convenient to get yes. to the CB, CBD. Very leafy and green. Mm. Very leafy and green. Um, uh, I never thought of it as being a hotbed of anything much. You know. No, I don't think. I don't know why they all assembled in uh, Tarman. Um, uh, but uh, in in subsequent reporting, we learned that very few of them were from Sydney. Uh, the majority actually came from uh, rural or regional New South Wales uh, with the balance coming from Melbourne. And there they were looking like ninjas, um, bad ninjas, by the way, not the good ones. Uh, uh, and uh, they jumped on, uh, jumped on a train uh, in the first instance uh, with uh, some fairly horrified people at the station uh, contacting police. Police slowed the train down between Artarman and North Sydney. It's only the one stop, isn't it? Um, and uh, by the time uh, by the time the train got to uh, North Sydney, uh, the New South Wales Riot Squad were waiting for them. Um, the following day, uh, the police, uh, in the first instance at North Sydney, uh, the, the police dispersed them, gave them move on orders. Uh, I think a number of people were detained, um, including Tom Sewell, who's well known neo Nazi. Um, uh, and uh, and then they they proceeded uh, again the following day on the Sunday to have another crack. The police inter- interrupted them again, uh, and then there was a final um, uh, meeting again uh, in, uh, <coughs> in 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 Chatswood, and um, and uh, and that was uh, that was again dispersed by police. Chris Minns jumped in on, I think, the Sunday, possibly yes. the Monday, uh, and suggested that these uh, uh, masked, uh, balaclavered people be demasked, Jack, and shown for what they are. I actually spoke to the wife about it. And she sort of had uh, five bob each way about this. Um, uh, they are nuisances. They are pests. They are horrible, horrible people. Um, uh, they should be sat down and given a uh, and given a, uh, a an Australian history lesson, particularly about our engagement in North Africa, where three thousand Australians died uh, fighting Nazis. Um, <coughs> but should they be demasked, Jack, just on the basis of well? We're not even talking about criminal charges. We're talking about people who issued um, uh, issued uh, move on orders. Uh, but what Chris Miss was Miss Min, Mins was suggesting was that there is legislation on the books already in New South Wales that would require people to um, bear their face, if you like, if they're going to protest. And, and personally, I think that's an excellent idea. I've got no problem with people protesting and marching, um, uh, but we ought to know who they are. That's a very good point, and and um, and I I totally agree with it. Um, uh, Chris, Chris, particularly Chris particularly um, uh, uh, persistent nu- nuisances like these people, public nuisances like these people. Chris means made the point that if you're going to go there and march for this or some other cause, your workmates, your employer, etc., ought to know that it's you who's there doing it. Your your family. Um, uh, your friends ought to know who you are. Um, and I've noticed this is, um, I don't know whether it's a post-COVID thing, but it's the same thing with the pro-Palestinian marches. Hell of a lot of people there, all the people who are chanting the um, uh, uh, the awful stuff, all tend to be masks. 
haven't seen so many masks there, must say, not saying it hasn't happened. But in the case of these guys, um, uh, clearly they, I mean, this is this is their, their, their costume. They don't wear the brown shirts anymore. They used to, if you remember the, the Australian mm. Nazi party, that group of clowns, they used to get around in the, in the full Nazi kit. But now they do it more anonymously. Um, they were on their way uh, to a change the date uh, rally on in the first instance on the uh, on the Friday, and uh, we're up to certainly no good there. They are a nuisance. They require enormous police resources to keep them in check. And yeah, I've got no problem with uh, the mask coming off, Jack. No, no, let them let them protest, let them march. Uh, but and I think this should be applied across the board uh, to all protests. No mask, no protest. Well. Uh, you may not wear a baseball cap, but I, I, I occasionally do. And I remember going into a pub one day, it's a pub in Redfern, um, and I'll be there tomorrow, actually, and I had a baseball cap on and they said, can you take that off, please? And I said, oh, yes, certainly. Uh, um, but it was <laughs> on licensed premises, so that's somewhat, somewhat different. Um, but uh, with CCTV footage or cameras around, um, it, it's generally not considered a, a good thing to wear a cap because you can – well, that's, you know, baseball cap and a pair of sunglasses, a perfect, perfect uh, disguise. Um, mm. But, uh, yeah, under under licensing laws, you're not allowed to wear a baseball cap in a pub. Well, I didn't know that, but there you go. I don't well, wear them. But yeah. yeah, but, yeah, I was, I was quite – I wasn't taken aback. I took my cap off straight away. It's actually a bit rude to wear it in there. Um, and uh, and so I uh, took it off. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that, that sort of it surprised me because – this is about the proliferation of CCTV footage too. So, yep. yes, yep. We, get we, the masks off them, Jack. We had this problem um, during the year of protest here, of um, uh, both the, the protesters, um, you know, all masked up um, and the police also, the police looking a bit like Darth Vader uh, all masked up. It was kind of medieval. You could stand up on the our proliferation of covered walkways around the central um, and watch two groups of people kitting up like they were going ready for a medieval joust. Um, mm. uh, uh, but I think that's that was a, allowing people to be masked on either side was a mistake. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah. Look, at, look at, you don't think it's because Nazis are probably fear a bit of COVID outbreak, do you? And that's why they keep themselves wrapped up. Uh, it, it could be. <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt it very much. We are dealing with a nasty little group of people. Tom Sewell is a, well, a multiply convicted uh, criminal um, uh, and not a very pleasant folk, uh, uh, fellow at all. I think they all should be sat down and made, and made uh, to listen uh, to, uh, uh, to Australian historians tell them about the rats of Tobruk uh, and, uh, and, and how many Australians suffered uh, <clears throat> as casualties in, in in war in North Africa against the Nazis. Yeah, well, I'm I'm with the ACLU, the American as it used to be, the American Civil Civil Liberties Union, who defended the rights of Nazis to march in Scotchy, I think it's called in a, a suburb in uh, Chicago. Right, um, Illinois uh, Nazis, Jack. Yep. Um, and uh, and I'd be with them. I would defend their right to march, but I think there's no masks allowed. We have to know who you are. Yeah, good point. All right. Uh, in media, Jack, uh, the ABC uh, has uh, a, uh, has a new chair. 
Um, so tell us a little bit about what you know there. Um, Kim Williams, uh, he's got a, a long and distinguished record. Um, uh, um, Former uh, boss of mine. Yes, he was, wasn't he? Um, uh, he and was, and uh, can I just tell you, a very, a very lovely man who was one of those fellows who went out of his way to just talk with the plebs, with to the staff, um, and, and was always cheerful. He's an extremely intelligent fellow. Um, he was he was married to Kathy Lett, the um, uh, uh, the 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 writer um, who later hooked up with um, Jeffrey Robertson, um, and, and is now married to one of Gough Whitlam's daughters. I think. Right, um, uh, uh, a man of great culture. Uh, I think a sort of gifted musician as well. Um, yeah. So I think um, I, I think it's a very good choice. Uh, so think- so he's, he, he ticks all the cultural boxes. Yes. Um, but he's also got um, a, a track record of running media organisations successfully, and God knows well, the, AB, the, the ABC needs well, more help. Um, this may be a more suitable position for him, and I'm trying to be as fair as I possibly can and, and, and not be dismissive. Um, uh, he took a view at News Corp that print was was uh, not worth the effort, shall we say, that he mm. didn't put the emphasis on print journalism uh, as he might have with other uh, platforms, particularly digital. Um, and I think there was, a, uh, there was a fair amount of pressure uh, between those people uh, who, uh, like Chris Mitchell, who's the editor in chief of the Australian at the time, who believed that uh, print had a, print does have a future, and so th- th- there was tension there. And of course, he doesn't find that the ABC doesn't print a masthead. It has its uh, wide ranging web services. It it, it it has its television and its radio. Um, I think it's a good. I think it's a good appointment. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it needs someone. Needs someone it, like it, that. It's. It's a bit of a fool's errand too because there's bound to be controversies as there always is around the national broadcaster. But, look, he, he uh, he's as, as competent as anybody to deal with them. Yeah, I, I, I think the ABC's problem is a, a lack of diversity of opinion um, and hopefully he can address that. I, yeah, we, we probably should set aside that conversation for another day. It's, it is yep. really a good conversation to have. Um, I, I, I tend to agree with you about it's not so much diversity of opinion. Um, it's just there. Are, there is a almost uh, overwhelming bureaucratic structure to all to uh, around their news groups and so forth. I mean, if you look at uh, their editorial guidelines, it looks like um, it looks like the Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, you know, <laughs> you have to be across all of this sort of stuff. I think the thing could be easily simplified. That's my and, view. But we will set this aside for a conversation yeah. one day and maybe we'll bring yeah. on a, a guest or two for that. Um, I, I, I would just say that what it leads to is dullness. Um, yeah, that's that's where I think the ABC is going, that, 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 it, that it is so obsessed about being impartial um, that it becomes a sort of dull a moment of news. Um, <laughs> one one is never surprised by what one hears or sees on the ABC, and that's boring. Yeah, yeah. All right. Now, meanwhile, uh, Murph Catherine Murphy, ex The Guardian, has moved into the, into uh, the PMO. She's she a few indeed. people there now. Mate. I could just walk straight into that place, have a chat, yeah. shake a few hands. Um, yeah. I, um, uh, isn't your old pal of speechwriter there now? 
Uh, I think I've got three good mates in there now. Um, uh, there's James Jeffrey, who's uh, Elbow's speechwriter. Uh, Catherine Murphy has moved into a media position. Of course, Brett Mason is uh, the Director of Communications, and he's a hell of a nice fellow, former SBS political reporter. A hell of a nice fellow, is Brett. Um, yeah. So. Uh, I think that's a real it's a real pickup for Murph. She she does have uh, for 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 Elba, uh, uh, Murph moving into the office there. Um, uh, she does have a pretty good way. I mean, she's she's w- w- well respected, but she won't be pumping out um, press releases or anything like that. That wouldn't be her job. It would be advice to the prime minister on how he communicates. And and strat- strategy generally, I would imagine. Mm. Um, good good appointment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and people She's get bright. a bit. She's really bright. People, <laughs> people get a bit overexcited about this stuff, but there's a long history of uh, uh, well, da- people da- moving in and out of in and out of government offices. Well, the spud Peter Dutton, he's he, he whipped out a a, a tweet that was. Uh, very much tongue in cheek about it. I don't know if you saw it. Yeah, um, I thought it was quite good. Yeah, it was, I thought it was quite amusing. And he mentioned David Kramer. Well, what's he got to do to get a gig with the Labor Party? <laughs> All this sort of stuff, which is well, probably a bit of a bit of a backhander for David, who's a hell of a nice bloke too. Um, yeah, but but but, 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 but you and everyone I, took it so. It was everyone was so sour about it. it was so took it so seriously. Well, you and I both like a bit of a sledge, so uh, I just thought that was a kind of a bit of a drive-by shooting, really. You know, well, there was a bit of a drive-by for for, for, for David, who who is a hell of a good journalist, and like, like I mean, when we look, I'm sure at, he was. I'm sure he wasn't upset about it. I don't think so. Um, uh, uh, he, he might have might have been uh, might have might have been quite pleased to. Uh, uh, to get a mention, but um, and and I, I got the impression that that's did that tweet just, oh, who, who can I think of? Oh, I'll David Crack. So David it wasn't Crack. as if it was, a you know, a, a, an outright uh, an outright sledge of his abilities. I, I think when we get to press uh, the, the press gallery, Jack, in Canberra, um, I, I think there's a, a view of people that's not really grounded in reality, um, that they are basically s- sitting around. Uh, we don't get so much into the pubs these days. It is Canberra after all. Um, and they're just basically choking on press releases and and uh, involved in the dark arts of leaking and all that sort of stuff. The, the, the reality of their job is very, very different. Um, and we do see some people who are pro-government, immediately anti-government, and some who are completely anti-government, depending on where that comes from. Uh, and we'll see others that are sort of conduits for government communications. Um if you can't figure it out when you're when you're reading the political reports, you probably should read a few more political reports. I, I think is the way it goes. It's just the way of the world. It's the way our politics is reported. It's not corrupt. It's not black. It's not dark. Um, uh, and uh, and really, it's a matter of uh, you find the you find the news you want to read. Mm. Um, yeah. The if you have a look at social media, some of the Comments on uh, press gallery journalists, journalists, you kind of think um, this doesn't bear any relationship to reality. They are, they are sure that person X or person Y is, you know, part of some, some great dark conspiracy. conspiracy. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It, 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 it's 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 a bit much. I mean, I, I get back to uh, good mate of mine, Lee Sales, and and Lee 
the lefty lefties hated her because she she they they figured she was from the right. The right would the uh, the the people from the right, the Tories and conservatives, would bag her because she was too left wing. And, and <laughs> you think in the end, well, you really can't win here, can you? You no. just can't win that one. Um, we also have um, a little bit going on there. Um, um, we've got. Uh, uh, the um, uh, prosecutor in, or former prosecutor in the ACT, uh, Mr. Drumgold. Shane Drumgold. Yes, uh, uh, says uh, the uh, uh, the person who inquired, uh, a Supreme Court justice, uh, an ACT Supreme Court justice. Uh, no, he's from Queensland, I think. Walter oh, was Sofran, he? So thank you. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't yeah. sure about that. I should know that. Anyway, um, that uh, he seemed to be. This is uh, the. Former uh, Queensland uh, justice was uh, in a lot of contact with journalists, especially the Australian. Well, what do we say about that, Jack? Um, I thought that was a bit odd. Um, I don't normally expect people who are conducting a public inquiry to be chatting away to journalists at all. It was probably just ricey, Jack. Just ricey. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't I, know. I, I really don't know. I, I'm open to persuasion that it's a good idea, but generally speaking, no, I don't like. Not um, when you're running a public inquiry. Yeah, I mean, I don't. For instance, I don't like the police tipping off the media when they when they arrest someone, doing perp walks and all that sort of stuff. I think that's wrong. Mm. Um, uh, and um, and I found this a little odd. Trouble. Well, let, let me justify uh, the Australians. If, if, if you're in a position as a media organisation or as a newspaper, you're going to take it because you're oh, getting. If if if, if know, someone if someone tells you um, uh, Walter Sofronoff's on the phone and like to have a chat to you, um, yeah. you're going to take the call. Oh, ethically, um, uh, I, I cannot speak to the man. Yeah. No, 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 no. The, 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 the problem is not on the Australian end. The problem is should the call have been made. Mm. The problem's on the Sofronoff. Well, end. I think it was more than one, Jack. I think we're talking yeah, about hundreds, right. aren't we? Se- seven hours, I'm talking. <laughs> Uh, well, more more of that bubbling away. All I'd say from the Australian's point of view is those journalists at the Australian were doing their job. Absolutely. <coughs> um, and, 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 in fact, if they hadn't taken the call and you were the editor, you'd be calling in the, into the office yeah. for a bit of a chat. Please you explain. Know? Yeah. Um, all right. United States, we're going to go overseas now. We'll start with the States. The southern border and is a huge problem for Biden and – uh, a size of majority of the public support Texas's construction of a wall along its border with Mexico. We know these things did not proceed uh, as Trump would have liked them. I saw Trump just as a just as a, um, uh, a a bit of a tangent. I saw him interviewed about this uh, Jack, where he was given the precise numbers on 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 how much of the wall was built during his administration. It wasn't very much, and he just didn't accept it. He just said, "No, oh, no, we did much more than that," but of course he didn't. Texas is going ahead with the construction of a wall along its border with Mexico. That is the big chunk of the border too, by the way, isn't it? That's, uh, I think, from memory, about uh, 1,800 kilometres from San Diego, essentially, all, all the way across the Rio Grande. Um, uh, so a big chunk of California, big chunk of Texas. Um, uh, and, and, and where the, um, uh, the migrants are crossing the border, it tends to be in Arizona and Texas. Yeah, that's right. So um, uh, <clears throat> it is a major uh, issue for um, uh, for 
for the for, for the forthcoming election and all the way through the primaries. Because um, people don't like this. Um, the people, um, a majority of people all around the world don't like irregular migration. Um, it's something that progressives find it hard to accept, but it's true. Um, and on raw numbers, Trump during the Trump's four years of presidency, the numbers of irregular migrants crossing the southern border dropped to 30-year lows. Yeah, there are lots uh, and, of reasons and, and, for and that. In, and in the four <laughs> years since, they've gone up to 30-year highs, and that's a problem for Biden. It's definitely a political problem. I won't dispute that at all. I think one of the one of the peaks you actually had was in December 2020 when, when, when uh, Trump was still yep. president, and there might be all sorts of reasons for that again. Um, it is a really detailed topic with, with uh, evidence falling on both sides, uh, to support that this has basically become a political football. Of course, Trump has uh, essentially issued his instructions to Republicans in the Congress uh, that this that this is not to be solved, that any attempt um, uh, pushed by the Biden administration through the Congress to resolve this issue or make it more difficult for a legal uh, entry uh, across the across the Mexican border um, be all put on hold, Jack. That that tells you just how important it is as a political asset for um, for uh, Donald Trump. Yeah, I don't think most Americans believe that Congress can fix the problem or wants to fix the problem. There doesn't seem uh, to be a lot of will there, certainly, uh, and, uh, and, and from the Republicans. This, this will be iteration number four or five of a bipartisan approach to solving the border problem in the, in the United States. None of yeah. them have ever worked. They're not intended to work. Well, it, goes uh, back to, it goes back to W, doesn't it? It goes yeah, back to George because, W. Yeah, because the Congress, are, by and large, in a bipartisan way, pro-open borders, the public are not. Mm. All right. Um, while we speak of Donald Trump, Jack, he's... Uh, uh, I saw. I was just. I don't know how this popped up. Probably in my Instagram. Reverend Sharpton weighed into this um, and uh, explaining how Donald Trump was going to have an extremely bad week. Um, he has lost um, uh, eighty-three million dollars uh, in a defamation uh, action uh, that that uh, essentially found that he did rape a woman and then defamed her subsequently. Um, so that's uh, $83 million is going to be lighter with Jack. He'll either have to pay that or pay the bond, and the bond will be a significant amount of money. Um, Judge Angoran uh, uh, is expected to announce a penalty that could even be in excess of the $370 million that Letitia James is seeking for fraud. That's the New York company civil action, Jack. Yep. Um you want to have a fair bit lying around to uh, be able to knock over those bills. Yes. <laughs> what are we talking about? He can pay a bond if he's going to appeal. You might want to explain that uh, if you can uh, on how that works in the American system. So $83 million fining, but I'm going to appeal. But my understanding is if, you, if you're going to post a bond, it's going to have to be close enough to that $83 million anyway. Uh, I'm not sure how much you've got to post, but yes, you can you, you can post a bond um, provided you lodge an appeal. Right. So he, he might walk away with the 83, but he's going to have to put 60 down. Gee, there's going to be a lot of uh, donate well, uh, now signs coming out of the Trump camp. Yeah, there will be. Yeah. 
Um, the 370 million, well, we'll wait uh, on this. Gee, it'll be, uh, it'll be almost with us now, Jack. We might keep an eye on, on breaking news there and just to see uh, what, uh, what the findings are in the New York civil matter. Yeah, what's what's more damaging um, with the New York civil matter um, in an immediate sense for Trump is that they could revoke his license to do business in, in New York. Well, what would that mean? I mean, does he would he have to sell his real estate? Would would he have to? Um, can, well, he's moved most of his operations down to Florida in terms of management. Hmm. What, what would it mean? What would it mean to him? It doesn't mean that he has to sell his properties in New York, does it? No. No, but you have to cease his operations up there. So I don't know how damaged that would be, but it would be damaging. Mm. And as far as I know, Jack, and, and, and we'll clarify in, in subsequent episodes because this is just coming up. So the first week of March is when the four-count indictment trial is due to commence. It may well be delayed, um, but it's due to commence on the 3rd, I think the 3rd of March, Jack. So mm. that's another little woe. Um, at, the, at the moment, all of this... Legal oh, well, he's four, points, he's four points ahead of Biden in the polling. Yeah, uh, at, uh, at we'll the moment it's helping him. Although um, uh, I had a look at the polls this morning. There's a Quinnipiac poll um, that puts uh, Biden up 50 to 44, um, but wow. um, that seems to be an outlier. Um, there's a Bloomberg poll of the swing states and Trump leads in that. Yep. Georgia eight points, Arizona three, Wisconsin five, North Carolina ten, Michigan five, uh, Pennsylvania three, and Nevada eight. On, on, on those figures, he'd be president. Um, and I noticed yeah. that the um, I had a look at what the Las Vegas bookmakers are doing. I'm always interested to know what the people who set the odds think about this. And um, uh, the figures yesterday were. Um, uh, on average, I think the, uh, they thought that Trump had a 54% um, uh, prospect of winning uh, and Joe Biden had a 35% prospect of winning. 54-35. So what have we got? Mm. 79. They're giving 21 to someone else, Jack. Mm. Is that what they're doing? Well, no, what they're saying is that there's a chance that somebody else might be, first of all, be the nominee and might win. Oh, of course, yes. Okay, because we are going through a a, um, a, a process. I mean, the, the Dems uh, have accepted Biden. I think there is a, a few little um, few little hiccups and a few little upstarts jumping into that process, but not much. So uh, he is considered the one most likely. Well, uh, a, a, a certainty to be uh, um, unless you're on um, to get on to the top. Democratic National Con- Convention <laughs> as the presumptive. Yeah. Candidate. Um, uh, um, Twitter, Twitter's all full of uh, this morning. All full of Michelle Obama. Yeah, I know that one pops up a fair bit. But look, there is a third party and candidate, that, and that and that learned journalist Peter Fitzsimons right in on this. <laughs> um, um, from what I understand, and I have nowhere near the um, substantial context of uh, Peter Fitzsimons. Um, uh, what I understand of Michelle Obama. Um, uh, she uh, despises uh, despises the the DC setup. Was never comfortable, not so much as the first lady, but was never comfortable in the confines of bitter um, uh, partisan politics, and would not be attracted to to this at all. How long yeah. before Hillary gets another mention, mate? Uh, well, well, uh, well uh, 
I thought when I saw Peter Fitzsimons being all over Michelle, Michelle Obama's, so to speak, uh, so to speak, yeah. um, that that blew her chances out of the water. But, uh, <laughs> I wonder if he's going to be. She might be proposing as an agent uh, for a book that she's got out, Jack. Yeah, well, he'll knock out. A, he'll knock out a. Are there four people in Australia who haven't had a biography on them written by Peter Fitzsimons? <laughs> no, well, it's mainly mainly historical events, Jack. Um, I think it was uh, – I, I pay very little attention to these things. I think it was uh, um, uh, the uh, the Ballarat movement uh, around, uh, around the Gold Rush. Uh, Eureka. Stuck Eureka, out. I think that was it, you know. Um, it's what we call um, 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 uh, history light, Jack, is what we call it. It's what the publishers call it, by the way. Um, but it sells, and good luck to him. Oh, yeah, absolutely, good luck to him. If he can, if he can sell a bunch of books, more power to him. It's a, yeah, it's a group, a group exercise. Of course, he's got researchers and, and writers, and then he basically pulls it all together and writes around it, as I understand it. So, uh, good luck to him if he's found. He, a, he, he found comes a way in to and sell spring- books. Good on him. He comes in and sprinkles the commas all over it like he does with his columns. <laughs> I think there's, he's probably a little bit more involved in that, but I, I don't know the process. But there is a like like a lot of the like a, a lot of the great um, fiction writers, particularly around thrillers and and um, and, and political thrillers and things like that. They're, they're, um, uh, those writers, you know, uh, who who sell literally millions of copies, they have teams writing for them. You know, yeah, doing the research, like- doing the writing, padding it out, draft, 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 and and he'll come along and redraft and finish it all. Um, yeah, uh, a bit like a Caravaggio painting or a Rodin sculpture. Who, who knows who actually did it? Some, yeah, someone, someone actually uh, might have been there with a pencil first. All right, so we're looking at so we're looking at the third party candidate. Of course, we do have Bobby Kennedy. Now, if you're junior, that is, not, not senior, he, he, he cannot be a candidate for a, for a host of very sound reasons. Um, uh, I noticed his polling has just fallen, fallen, it's just gone. He's polling about 8% in the last poll I looked at, and it yeah, was at 25. Um, so this is what happens with the primary process, isn't it? it you know, he, he simply cannot get clear air. No. no. So has um, he got look- any chance whatsoever? None. None? None. Yeah, all right, fair enough. Um, his polling was at sort of 25% and it really did look like, I mean, I, I still think there's opportunities for him um, because he's up against, as it seems, two very old men. He's not a young, sprightly figure himself. He's in, well into, I think he's into his 70s. Um, but there he's, was He's, that he's not quite 70, he's about my age. No, I think you'll find he's – well, I think he hit 70. He might hit 70 this year. Anyway, like I, I won't quibble about that. I did look at this because I wrote about him uh, a few weeks ago when his polling was at sort of an all-time high. Um, there is a bit of background here. There was a, there was a Ross Perot uh, dueled against uh, George Herbert Bush – uh, and Bill Clinton back in the day, Jack, in 1992. And, yep. uh, uh, of course, Clinton won that election. Yes. So Perro was uh, was running basically around 39% at one stage in polls um, before the uh, 1992 election. I, I, I have very little memory of that time around yeah. American politics. And I obviously knew he was a third-party candidate. Uh, um, but um, 
uh, as, as you described it, as you described it, the, the primary process concentrated the attention, the media attention, on the candidates for huh. the major parties, and that um, uh, Perot's um, uh, uh, polling waned as that happened. Well, he ended up getting nineteen, um, and and I honestly think um, uh, that there is room for a third party candidate. Un, a non-aligned candidate to come through, not perhaps not this election, but in subsequent presidential elections perhaps. Um, but it is extremely difficult. He got 19% of the vote, one in five. Um, astute Democrat pollster Mark Penn thinks an independent bid could work. Uh, legendary Democratic consultant James Carville um, from going back to the uh, uh, Clinton and Obama uh, periods, um, who in, and he knows his stuff and normally think uh, gets things right. Says, um, uh, an indie bid is going to get a lot of fucking votes on in 2024. Uh, I just don't think it'll be enough votes, and I don't think that um, Bobby Kennedy is the, is um, the right is man. The, is the right man. Yeah, superficially perhaps. Um, you know, he's a Kennedy, he's got the name, he's got the look. He does look a bit like Jack, probably more more like Jack than he does his old man. And then you scrape away a bit further and you see some uh, pretty dismal politics at work. Hmm. Um, he's tried to play. <coughs> he wants to increase the minimum wage, basically double it, I think. Um, it... Uh, Sits around eight dollars, I think, uh, the minimum wage, eight dollars an hour uh, in the in the US, and I think he wants to jack it up to about fifteen. Um, <clears throat> all of those things are designed to get people on side, but the system does not work for him. No, all can't right. Can't see it myself. Over to Israel and Gaza. I just want to start with uh, readers' comments. I won't name this fellow, but uh, he's a person I know reasonably well, and he said this about your comments, Jack. Um, uh, a friend said they feel like they're all Israeli ambassadors having to justify policy of the Netanyahu government regardless of their politics wherever they go. And he said, after listening to you, Jack, it was like you had read his mind, um, he goes on to say, and, and, and your points, just to, just to give our listeners some, some context, your points, and I, th- I think for once we're in fairly feverish agreement on this, that, that progressive Jews- we won't, let, we won't let it happen again. <laughs> <laughs> we've, got to have, we've got to put climate change on the, on the document, mate, then we can really have a stash. Um <clears throat> Uh, was that the progressive, the, the, the progressive uh, uh, Jewish left, and, and most Jews living in Europe, living in their states, living in Australia, are of that bent, have found that they are um, uh, politically friendless, Jack, uh, that they're being uh, being labelled as genociders and, and, and uncaring people who, who are witnessing the deaths of uh, civilians, unnecessary deaths of civilians by the IDF, etc. And it's as if they have to individually um, uh, justify that. Um, and so that's what uh, this is what our listener was saying. And he went on to say, we will forgive comrades, because he's a progressive himself, we will forgive comrades who are ignorant we will remember the ones who were genuinely anti-Semitic and, in parentheses, most aren't. 
I'm not sure that he's right about that, Jack. I I think there is uh, anti-Semitism flourishing in the left, um, uh, in that progressive left space. There always has has been, I might add. I, I, I don't buy that. I, I, I don't buy that. I think this is a very recent phenomenon. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued, astonished, and appalled all, all at the same time. Um, uh, wrote a column this week looking at uh, looking at Human Rights Watch report on the treatment of women in Gaza, uh, a report that they uh, or a submission that they prepared uh, for a UN group. Um, uh, and, and and the rights of women in, in Gaza in particular, much worse, um, uh, abortion criminalised, um, uh, divorce almost in, in, impossible to obtain, no domestic violence laws in place, honour killings uh, where the murderers are offered life sentences. I could go on and on. The role of children there is really awful as well. Um, and yet these... Those are the same sorts of major issues that that, that galvanise the progressives, and they are just straight out ignored in the context of Israel's uh, conflict with, in Gaza. Mm. Well, I'm old enough to remember when the left was pro-Israel. <laughs> How old are you again, Jack? I'm 68. <laughs> But, but ser- um, seriously, we're going back to the 40s now, aren't we? 40s no, and 50s. No, no, no. Seriously, in the 60s, um, luminaries of the British Labor Party would, would send their kids off to spend their summer on a kibbutz. Mm. Um, no, no, uh, I, I, I think that's right. I mean, what I would say is that anti Semitism has been um, uh, the, the sort of the cornerstone of the extreme left and extreme right for as mm. long as we can remember. Um, and, and what has surprised me is the easy way in which the progressive left in this country, and I am a member of that group, I would consider myself a member of that group, um, have, uh, have, have, have uh, fallen in behind um, uh, fallen in behind Hamas and, and, and Palestine and, and, the, and the Palestinian Authority. See, I, I look at this, I'm, I'm a very simple fellow, but I look at this and if you're a, if you're a liberal progressive and you look at the Middle East, um, uh, most of the countries there are kind of um, repressive and or basket cases. Well, there's only one democracy there. There's only one yeah, there, functioning there is, parliamentary democracy there. There, there. there is only one liberal democracy, the sort of country that we think, you know, the progressives think we ought to, all ought to be. There's only one of them and it's Israel. Uh, yeah, I, I would say that it's, Parliamentary or um, participatory democracy is not exactly firing on all cylinders. Um, no. um, uh, it in those rankings that come from um, uh, um, various uh, sort of uh, geopolitical analyses, it is the lowest ranked partic- participatory democracy in the world. There are only about twenty five of them, to be honest, um, and others who pretend to be democracy they call hybrid um, uh, regimes. But if you if you care about protection of minority rights, you know whether it be gays, Arabs, um, uh, or Druze, or whoever they are, um, uh, you know women, all that sort of stuff. The only place that they, their, their human rights are really respected in the Middle East is in Israel. Well, I mentioned this in a column today. There is a group, I think it's founded in America. I don't know if it has an Australian face, but it's called Gays for Gaza, Jack. 
no one well, uh, no one has uh, chooks for KFC. Yeah, um, well, they've been around. They've been around since the uh, since October seven, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, you know, yeah, no, that's right. It's, um, it's, and, it's, and it's an astonishing degree of of ignorance, delusion. To, to, yeah. Mm. Um, uh, one thing that I did, the point I did uh, want to make in that column is that Israel said, and, and perhaps too slowly, and perhaps. Uh, 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 made it more difficult than perhaps it should be, but but uh, uh, gay men, gay gay women, LGBTQ people who are oppressed, actively oppressed in Gaza uh, prior to the conflict, could um, come to Israel, uh, seek asylum, and uh, in a, in a, uh, a legislative change made in twenty twenty two. Um, uh, can live and work in Israel. There was a long period where they were, had sort of an uncertain future. So they could live in Israel but couldn't work, and and it was it was not it was a long way from perfect. But that was adjusted where people who are actually gay and 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 repressed because of it in Gaza could come to Israel and be given a, a re, be given residency and find work and be able to work. I'm not sure whether you met, read John Lyon's piece on the ABC. He's talking about three different trips he's taken to Israel since October 7. And the first trip, the plane was full of Israelis going back to fight. Um, uh, and since then, there's been no Israelis on the flights because they're all back there. And there have generally been people from other countries who are going over there to work to replace the Palestinians who used to work uh, in Israel because that all bets are off with that now. There's no trust. Hmm. All right. Um, the, uh, the 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 UN um, uh, are going to come out of this very badly um, uh, in the, the Gaza Israel. Well, this is the UNRWA. Tell us what that is, Jack, uh, and tell me what what's been alleged. It's a, it's the, the it's the only refugees in the world who have their own refugee organisation, uh, a UN refugee organisation. Everyone else is carried by covered by the UNHCR. So um, UNRWA, what's that stand for? It's the United Nations. Oh, I've forgotten, forgotten the um, uh, Relief Works. Yeah, um, and and what it's done is it has kept um, uh, multi generations of people in the category of being refugees. No one gets resettled. Um, well, uh, Hamas sort of infamously said that. More than half, I think, sixty percent of the population in Gaza were refugees. Yes, that's what. And then they it doesn't say. represent them. It's someone else's problem. It's the UN's problem. Yeah, um, and, and and Hamas excuses itself from running up uh, any kind of organisational government and leaves all of that to the UN. Um, now, the difficulty with that is that um, the UN. Uh, is complicit really in Hamas activities, um, and it won't, it won't. The UNWRA won't survive this. Already, um, major countries are pulling their funding of it, and, and that won't go back. So, what is actually alleged that a dozen uh, uh, members of the UNRWA, the um, uh, the uh, refugee organisation in Gaza? Uh, were uh, a, a part of the attacks on October 7. That's what's alleged. Um, well, 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 the UN have said the 12 were. They've confirmed it, yeah. 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 So uh, Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, has said, uh, I, 
he was himself horrified by these accusations. I strongly appeal to the governments that have suspended their con- contributions to at least guarantee the continuity, the continuity, I should say, of UNRWA's operations. So the great disgrace of this is that, as you say, that money won't come back and and what good work they do do in terms of putting food on or putting food into stomachs, often ch- children's stomachs and so forth, this is going to is just going to disappear now. Yeah, no, that that pre October seven world won't return. Um, there's going to be have to be um, a new procedure and uh, new structures to help the Gazans, um, uh, and the UN won't be part of it. What about Netanyahu's political fortunes, Jack? Well, I, I think he's. If you look at Israeli history, he's probably toast um, uh, because if you're the man at the top, man or woman at the top, when there is a failure um, of preparation and intelligence like there was before October seven, um, generally speaking, you pay the price of losing your um, political career, and that's probably going to happen to him. Well, he's not showing any signs of uh, wandering off into the sunset, Jackie. He, he said uh, this week, I've told President Biden, I've told told all the leaders who came here, this is your war as well because this is not merely a minor skirmish. This is part of a major confrontation between the moderate axis of Israel and the moderate Arab states against Iran. Its proxies are killing Americans as we speak. Um uh, he's referring there, of course, to the three American uh, soldiers who were uh, killed by drone strike um, in uh, Jordan. Was it Jordan? Uh, in Jordan, on on the border of Jordan and Iraq, I think. Um, That's right. Tower Tower Twenty Two. Listen, um, the, the, we'll get, we'll get back to called. Netanyahu in a minute. Um, but what would you expect America's response would be to that? And and. I mean, there was there was some pretty outlandish remarks made bomb Iran and and that sort of stuff from from Republican um, 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 Congress people were clean, and, and hangers on media hangers on. Um, Biden is said to be uh, cautious about any um, response that would uh, engage Iran on the battlefields, and I don't think that's in anyone's interest at the moment. What we learnt during the Iran-Iraq war, Jack, is the Iranians have got a hell of a lot of troops. Um, I think they've got over a million people armed and ready. Um, but um, uh, what would be the sort of response strike? I mean, you know, three American servicemen dead, you know there's going to be one. Might I suggest that uh, some of these drone factories that Iran uh, has uh, and supplying uh, supplying Russia as well as Hamas, as well as Islamic Jihad, as, as well as the um, uh, the uh, um, um, uh, other groups in Lebanon and in Syria. I need to blow the hell out of one of those, Jack. Um, the, uh, the spokespeople for the White House and the Pentagon have been talking about striking Iranian personnel in Syria. Uh, personnel in Syria and Iraq or Iranian naval assets in the Persian Gulf. Yeah, that's um, a good start. <laughs> uh, but a, a, a strike on Iran itself being a red line they don't want to cross. Mm. Uh, Biden has announced this morning that he has formulated his response, but we don't know what it is, um, uh, which led to uh, David Burge from Austin, Texas, 
on Twitter saying, oh, well, if it's, it's Joe's usual response to Iran, they'll be carpet bombing Iran with um, uh, pallet loads of $100 notes, um, uh, uh, giving them some more money. Uh, uh, yeah. That's a political problem for Biden is that he has – supervised, has been the man in charge when they have reduced sanctions against Iran and they have given them cash. Um, So that's a political problem that will carry him into, that will carry on to the, the election, I think. There's no uh, way for him well, to fix Robert that. Gates during the week, Jack, had a nice old go at the Biden administration over its foreign policy. I, I don't see, a, I mean, you know, he, he was, uh, he, he was uh, an Obama uh, 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 foreign policy advisor, uh, national security advisor, um, and um, and I don't see that Biden's got much wrong. I mean, um, there was the pullout of Afghanistan, which is embarrassing. But what else were they going to do there? Uh, I, I think they've walked, they've treaded a line, they've supported Israel well up to this up to this point. Um, uh, I think they've been. Uh, bullish enough, uh, and 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 got NATO into a stronger, a stronger role than than they've had really since uh, since uh, since the treaty was created. Um, I don't see a whole lot wrong there. Uh, oh, I, I think there's a, a, a fairly large body of opinion in in, in Washington. Um, uh, it's bipartisan, uh, as you pointed out, that thinks that. Both the Obama administration in the second term and um, the Biden administration have been way too soft on Iran. Yeah, I, I understand. Certainly, the um, and, I, and not I, I understand the Obama criticisms. I, I don't. I, yeah, I don't. I don't see a lot of problems. I mean, what, what we're talking about is that Biden lifted the uh, sanctions to Iran to Iran in uh, <coughs> uh, um, uh, and, and went back to the Obama agreement. Um, which the Iranians probably aren't uh, following. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't see a lot wrong there. He's been able to balance that. What is an, a, an American electoral imperative? That sort of isolationism with this view that America is and should be sort of uh, a, in a role of policeman around the world. I don't think he's got a whole lot wrong. But anyway, uh, um, the yep. response, he's certainly not going to tell us what it is in advance, even if he might be a little bit dottery. He didn't mention, <laughs> didn't mention what the strike's going to be, um, but you would imagine it'll be fairly significant. Uh, he, he needs to do something significant, yes. I mean, just, I mean, he needs to for all sorts of reasons, but particularly politically. All right. Uh, and and you know, people talk about how low his approval ratings are. Um, you know, they fell off the cliff during the um, Kabul withdrawal. Um, they were, he was actually tracking fairly well until that, and they dropped markedly and they've never recovered. What are they supposed to do, Jack? Yeah. Allow yeah. American servicemen and women to die there endlessly with no military or strategic <laughs> objectives? I, I just don't understand that. You, you you might be right, but I don't think the voters of the United States agree. No, with no, you. fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see that. All right, moving on to Russia. Um, Vladimir Putin's out and about, Jack. He's uh, moved out of the house. He's walked away from the long table, and uh, he uh, uh, made a little visit to uh, Kaliningrad, which you might explain is a little piece of Russian territory uh, on the Baltic um, that uh, uh, has no border with Russia. 
It's uh, it's between uh, Poland and Lithuania, mm. um, and it is the and it is the Russian fleet's Baltic Sea port. But no, there's no direct um, uh, link to the Russian uh, landmass. So he's flown over, presumably. Yes, he's flown over uh, over. Uh uh, what, Lithuania, and uh, headed into Kaliningrad. Gee whiz, yep. that's an opportunity missed, Jack, isn't it? Um, yes. Um, interestingly, um, one of the newspapers was showing showing us photos. He, apparently, uh, he's got even more holiday homes now. That, uh, Has he? Uh, yeah, well. Including one right up on the Finnish border. Um, uh, uh, and he, he tends to build in um, uh, mafia-style. You know, um, uh, great big, um, you know, McMansion things. Oh, I see. So we're talking um, um, uh, a florid sorts of uh, decor, Jack. Yeah, well, he and Donald Trump had that in common. I, mean, I don't know if you ever saw the uh, the photos of the Trump apartment. Um, it looked looked like it was decorated by Liberace with about a pound <laughs> of cocaine in him. You know? <laughs> so, uh, what was uh, what was Vlad up to in Kaliningrad, Jack? Or I think just rattling the cage a little bit. Yeah, it is a bold thing to do. And gee whiz, you know, I mean, we're talking about Biden not making, in my view, not making too many foreign policy errors. That is an opportunity missed uh, to hit him, uh, hit him with a fifty cal. Uh, 50 cal sniper rifle from a distance um, and uh, see you later. Um, yeah. But in all seriousness, Russia is on a total war footing. The whole economy and industry is dedicated to the war effort. Um, uh, European and NATO countries spending around 2% of GDP on defence. The Kremlin knows the Kremlin is spending much, much more and we still do have this kind of morass in um, in eastern Ukraine. The issue yeah, they, with that for him is that body bags are coming home, and and the thing that will change things, Jack, if it does change, is the role of women, particularly mothers, in Russia, who mourn the deaths of their the mourn the deaths of their children, and their. And, and in turn become angry with Vladimir Putin, and that's when things can change. Um, the latest reports I've seen is that the um, uh, the, the largely conscript now um, uh, Russian uh, troops in Ukraine yeah. are suffering World War One levels of casualties. Yeah, and um, look, the, the the word is the. Uh, the uh, the Ukrainians, in terms of their communications, they find their the radio band that the, the Russians are using, and they and they uh, um, um, uh, they shut it down, uh, and then uh, then the Russian troops reach for their mobile phones if they can't use the radios, um, and uh, and then boom 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 boom. Um, yeah, which is which is not to say um, that means the Ukrainians are going well. That's not to say that they've got the capacity to actually take back the territory, um, and that's the that's the difficulty that the West finds itself in now is working out just what to do. Yeah, there are other, are other good signs, and I fully accept what you're saying. There are other good signs in terms of um, uh, the uh, the Black Sea. I mean, we used to talk about on this program, Jack. Uh, the ability of the Russian Navy to be able to um, uh, um, uh, restrict uh, Ukrainian trade, 
um, <coughs> to put a blockade around it. And now it doesn't have that capacity anymore. It's 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 naval it's naval assets have been heavily reduced. Um, yes. So that's one good thing. All right, we're talking about Iran, Jack. Um, uh, they we should have co- covered that, really. Yeah, we sort of we, we sort of have. Do they have elections coming this year? I, I have a feeling before. they do. One of the many um, outrageously totalitarian governments that do. Yes, they do, of course. And they had a um, a different system this year, so people could pre-nominate uh, as candidates in 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 the Iranian general election, uh, and then that. That if you did nominate, there was a set period before Christmas. So I think about a week or ten days where people could nominate, and it had a record number of of nominations, which sounds wonderful for their democracy. Well, it's not a democracy, but we'll move on. Uh, and um, and then <laughs> that group of nominees go to uh, go to a council um, uh, made up essentially of people that are uh, appointed by Ayatollah Khamenei. Uh, and then they go, well, we don't like the look of him, we don't like the look of him, we don't like the look of him. So yeah. I think we can fairly assume it's, that there won't a, be... It's a, a bit f- like applying a bit like applying for membership at the Melbourne Club, is it? <laughs> you don't turn up there with a name like Hoisted or Halfpenny, you're no. not going to get through the door. Um, all right. Um, uh, they've been... Uh, <laughs> This, this really isn't news, Jack. There've been there's been there've been protests in France. They're always protests in France, and by gee, they go hard, and we love them for it. They do. This one's a little bit different. What they're doing is um, essentially putting a food blockade on Paris. Mm. Um, they're stopping the major transport routes. Uh, farmers in tractors, by and large, yeah. um, uh, are stopping the transport routes into Paris. And I wasn't aware of this, but. Um, this could get sticky very quickly because um, it would only it would take less than a week, three or four days before Paris would start running out of food because everything's bought in fresh every everything day. Everything's fresh, which, yeah, everything's yeah, every which day. Is, yeah. Which is why the food in Paris, you walk through the markets in Paris and, you know, if you're you know a, a, a home cook like me, you're almost drooling at the quality of the produce in the little markets. The stores. breads, Jack, the breads. I mean, they're buying bread twice a day. You know, yeah, if, if yeah. you're a big bread consumer, you, you, you're buying bread twice a day, um, pretty much warm straight out of the oven. Um, so yeah, there, uh, it does have it does have the propensity. Look, I, I don't know whether uh, the, uh, the this collective of farmers really know what they're up against because if they start starving Parisians, mate, they'll be. <laughs> I reckon a few yeah. of those tractors will go <laughs> go over yeah. very quickly. Yeah. All right, we'll keep an eye on that one. Um, they, that, they do play politics hard in France, don't they? They do indeed. And another place where they do play politics very, very hard is in Pakistan, Jack, also a country uh, undergoing elections. And it would seem that Imran Khan, former Pakistan Prime Minister, will not be participating as he's been sentenced to 10 years in prison. He was already serving a three-year sentence for some other confected outrage, Jack. Um, um, yeah, you you might think that ten years seems a very harsh treatment for a political opponent, but at least he wasn't put in that, put up in a plane with a case of exploding mangoes. Yeah, or shot down on the street um, uh, like some of his predecessors. Nawaz Sharif seems to be the pick of the generals to be the winner. Um, uh, and um, the, and what you mean by that is he's been given the nod by the military. 
Yeah, he's been able to come back from exile and all of his previous um, uh, legal problems seem to be falling apart in the courts miraculously. Um, um, so it looks like he's the pick of the generals um, and if he's the pick of the generals, he will probably win the election. Um, yeah, so uh, Imran Khan, getting back to him, uh, and his vice president, uh, his... Uh, uh, of the PTI party, they've both been jailed. Yes. Um, and uh, uh, <coughs> uh, this is described as a human rights, uh, well, a human rights activist and political analyst, Tosif Ahmed Khan, said uh, the jailing of both men is the murder of justice. Um, I mean, I, the only thing you can say about Imran Khan, a magnificent cricketer and a great ambassador for Pakistan, I think a uh, World Cup winning captain too, Jack, wasn't he? Um, he was. I, was. I was there that day in 1992. Yeah. Um, is that at least he'll um, be pretty well looked after in, in a Pakistani slammer. Um, he will uh, – I'd actually look at some of the conditions as reported for him and he's living in fairly bleak conditions at the moment. Um, but I imagine uh, with a bit of money that uh, he will have a fairly comfortable life. Uh, I, I, it, it just seems to me that, that this is a, a country just going round and round in circles, Jack. Uh, it is. Uh, jailing, um, using the legal process against political opponents is never a good idea. Oh, Jack, where are you going with that? If you can't do the time, don't do the crime. That's that, that's, that's my view. Um, all right, moving on to sport, Jack. Uh, weren't we just reminded just what a wonderful game test cricket is on two occasions, uh, two almost happening simultaneously. The West Indies came from the clouds uh, to beat Australia by eight runs in what was a wonderful and gripping test match where neither side – seemed uh, to have any great advantage over the other. One side might play a poor 30 minutes and uh, and then the and the other would have an ascendancy and then it would go the other way. Um, and we saw the rise of a superstar uh, in uh, in uh, in Joseph. I'm just trying to think of his first name. Help me out. Um, Shamar Joseph. Shamar Joseph. And, uh, and what a wonderful player. Here's the, the Guyanese fast bowler. Um, I saw him get hit. On the foot with a uh, Mitchell Stark uh, Yorker the night before, and thought, "Well, he won't just play tomorrow. He won't be able to play tomorrow, but he won't be able to play for about six weeks." And uh, thought very, you know, thought, "Oh, well, that's just the end of this as a contest." But he had news for us, Jack, uh, and um, and, he, and 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 it was one of the best spells of fast bowling you would ever see. Um, yeah, ended up seven for sixty odd, um, and uh, told the skipper. Um, you can't take the ball out of my hand, um, all that sort of stuff he did. But um, but but he, 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 was, he was just wonderful. And we saw, of course, um, uh, Brian Lara, um, Carl Hooper, um, uh, Ian Bishop uh, in commentary teams, various in tears and overwhelmed by emotion with, with the West Indies having that wonderful win. And it was just a sense that the West Indies are back a little bit. For now, anyway. Yeah, uh, first time, first win in Australia, what, for 27 years? Yeah, 1996, I think it was, yeah. 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 Um, the uh, Talking to an English friend who was watching the spell from a pub in London, uh, um, and a pub in uh, Melbourne, uh, and he made a comment that stuck with me that 
the the young bloke Shamar Joseph has the physique and the technique um, uh, to be a great bowler for a very long time. He's a he, he's only about Malcolm Marshall. Huh? Yeah, he's, he's not. not he's not a big. He's not a big human. He's not a Kirtley. Or no, a he's not a big fellow, but um, the, with the smoothness of the action, it looked like sort of a cross between Malcolm Marshall and Michael Holding, you know? I mean, uh, um, he just slides into the crease almost effortlessly. But it wasn't just him. They had a pretty good um, – Yeah. Uh, they had a pretty good test. You know, Joshua De Silva and Kevin Hodge, good yeah, good knocks. Um, Alzari, Joseph, um, made a 22 ball, 32, and took six wickets in the match. Um, that's a pretty good performance. Oh, the big quick, yeah, and he is a big human. Um, yeah, uh, he bowled beautifully too. Yeah, um, uh, they, they, you know, Australia could be criticised possibly for going into that test a little bit underdone in terms of motivation. I don't think there are any excuses. I think they were just outplayed by side of better on the day or over the five. Yeah, and uh, and in particular, particular on the last day, just a, a great spell of bowling. Yeah. Um, what did you think of the response from uh, a lot of the former players were critical of Pat Cummings and other people, and of uh, Adam Gilchrist in the commentary box because Gilly stood up and gave Brian Lager a hug and was um, uh, and was smiling at him, um, and um, Ian Healy and a few of the others were. They were very critical of this, that you're not supposed to be taking any joy out of, um, out of losing a test oh, match. Oh, I, so I, I forget who the former test cricketer was who made that comment too. It wasn't, it, it wasn't uh, any of the ones you mentioned. And I thought that was absolute junk. Um, if you, <coughs> if you're, from Adam Gilchrist's point of view, and it might be more or less the same as mine, what you want to see is test cricket flourish. And it cannot flourish without a strong and competitive West Indies team. And, and what the best thing about uh, Lamar Joseph was, he said, I will play for the West Indies regardless of what else is going on, including Caribbean Premier League. And he's he's got all that in front of him. I think mm. he's just just signed a contract before the before the tour with one of the CPL sides, one of the CPL sides. Um, and, uh, and, of course, he plays for Guiana. Um, uh, and he hasn't had much first-class cricket, but he's saying I will make myself available for the for for um, uh, for the uh, for, for for West Indies cricket. And Brian Lara was in the corner, Jack, and the smile was from ear to ear. He was film <laughs> filming it was Brian, the Prince of Trinidad, um, uh, and yeah, there was a sense that something had changed in world cricket. It it needs to change more. And it needs a bit of socialism, as we talked about. You know, these guys, the West Indian cricketers, this, the standard contract is $200,000, 200000 Australian dollars, more or less. Mm. Um, um, Pat Cummins on $2 million. Now, you take 10% out of his salary and take 10% out of every other contracted Australian salary, do the same in India, do the same in England, and move that money into Bangladesh, move that money into Pakistan, move that money into 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 the Caribbean and make it available for test players and you will have a better a better system. The problem with West Indies cricket is not a lack of talent, it's lack of availability of, of players who can make more money playing in the short form. 
Yeah, I uh, couldn't agree more. Meanwhile, at the same time as the, the Great West Indies win, England had a terrific win. It was um, a good uh, win. As much as it hurts me to say it, Jack. Um, uh, magnificent uh, uh, win. Wonderful, wonderful big knock from Ollie Pope, who that, <coughs> you know, the, the, the English were, were going through the great knocks from Englishmen, English cricketers, um, in India in the past, and, and there was a mention of a Joe Root uh, big hundred. Uh, there was a big hundred made by KP, um, and this certainly uh, was among well, them. A couple of Alistair Cook. Yeah, yeah, Cook as well, just in recent times. Um, and, and this was this was uh, right up there with them. They were in all sorts of trouble when uh, he started building uh, building partnerships with the lower order and the lower middle order and the, and, and then the, uh, the tail enders. Um, well, I think they're 150 odd behind with five wickets down, weren't they? Yeah, that's right. And and they ended up uh, ended up with a lead of uh, oh, it was it was it wasn't 200, was it? It was 100, 100. So I should I should have sort of got the scores down. But um, and then they had uh, a bloke on debut pop up and take seven wickets, Jack. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a great performance from uh, from England. Uh, one of the things that uh, my English pal who was watching this while on, on a visit to Melbourne, um, he was <coughs> impressed impressed with the graciousness of the um, of the Australians after the win. He said, "Not something I've seen very often." Was his comment on the WhatsApp to me, um, and and that's a I can tell you it's a pretty general perception amongst. English cricket fans, the Australians have been very graceless winners um, uh, for a long time and uh, they are all quite pleased to see um, the sort of generosity Pat Cummings approached the, the, the win with. Oh, I think he's a great captain for lots of reasons and that's one of them. But I, I, I was really um, – I did really enjoy the footage from the rooms where both sides were having a beer or a drink um, uh, and a chat and, uh, and Cummings and uh, – and Lamar were sharing shirts and all that sort of stuff and having a having a good chat. It's kind of what cricket's all about, isn't it, Jack? Yeah. Um, uh, Ferocious on the ground and have a beer and a chat after and a, and a joke laugh afterwards. Yeah. I, I, I said back to him, I thought that most of the Australian cricketers were okay. The commentators weren't so good in terms of grace. Um, uh, no, uh, they but, weren't, were they? No, but but I, I, I go back to 2005, Shane Warne's finest tour, um, uh, the, the, the Losing Ashes series. You remember the last day at the Oval, um, uh, Kevin Peterson came out and there was a, still a slim chance Australia could tie the series and on Warnie the last day one. at the Oval. Yeah, Warnie dropped one, yeah. Uh, Warnie dropped, dropped a sitter, really. A well, sitter um, by uh, his standards, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and Peterson went on to make a, a really great 158. Yeah, I think it was 100. Yeah. Well, I thought it was 170, but go on. Yeah. yeah. And uh, as he walked off, uh, and by that stage, the, the ashes were firmly in England's hand because there was no chance for Australia. Um, Shane Warne ran 40 metres, not something he loves doing, he's no runner, um, uh, to shake his hands and say, well done. And I thought, you know, that's that was part of the thing that part of the reason why I love Sharon Warren so much mm. that he actually was a gracious loser. 
Yes, uh, and that did for hurt. All the, for all that, he was a fierce competitor yeah, while the game was going on. It did hurt all of them. And this is, you know, Ponting, Gilchrist, McGrath, Warren. This is some of the greatest cricketers this country's ever produced. And they did uh, get on oh, Hayden Langer. And they, they, they did get together and gave uh, England a hell of a spanking on in, uh, in Australia uh, six months later or less than. Um yeah, uh, KP got involved in a bit of uh, commentary nonsense too, Jack, where Harsha Bogley <laughs> determined, I don't know what cricket level the Ice has um, played at, but he was talking about the switch hit and how it should be banned, Jack. He sounds like he's uh, from the Australian Harsha Greens. Yeah. He wants to ban, um, thing, ban things he doesn't like. And yeah. uh, KP got very annoyed and said, I've had enough of this and walked away from the commentary. <laughs> <laughs> he's very verbose. Kevin Peterson, he, he gets you. There's that magnificent clip of him doing um, doing analysis with Ricky Ponting uh, when uh, when the Ashes were on uh, in our winter, and uh, and uh, and KP was saying just how Joe Joe Root just came out and he just dominated from ball one and all that sort of stuff. And Ponting said, "Yeah, he's out and he got forty. Um, yeah. <laughs> and KP knew. Uh, Ricky had his measure. Um, Australian Open, all done and dusted, of course. Uh, but look, those people were booing elbow, Jack. They were paying what two to two to between two and six thousand dollars for a ticket. Um, the cheapest possible seat you could get it was a green uh, fifteen hundred. Wow, that's up in the nosebleeds. Wow, and six thousand six thousand for anything you, you, you'd want to buy, you know. And that's the mob who, who booed Elbow. No wonder they booed him, Jack. They're they're big earners. They're obviously big big income earners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, they're using this Uber style surge pricing. Um, I'm told, uh, and, and I think it's an attempt to take out um, what we call scalpers and the English call ticket touts uh, to take them out of the equation. Um, uh, and I, I'm sort of a bit not sure about this. Um, I, I think that it ought to be possible not to be rich and still get to a, you know, through a ballot or something, still get a ticket to the final. Well, it's never really going to work. I mean, it might work where you've got a big stadium. Um, and, and look, there's nothing wrong with the tennis centre. Don't, don't get me wrong, but what's what's the centre court capacity? Ten. Uh, 15, I think, 15 to 20. Yeah. So it's going to be scarce. Where there's scarcity, there'll be people wanting to make a quit out of it, Jack. Uh, on to racing. So. Uh, the trainers, Victorian, uh, well, Racing Victoria is to re- reconsider its position after the trainers' premiership race was blown wide open with news Kieran Ma would start from scratch in the trainers' premiership following Dave Eustace's departure to Hong Kong. What's going on there, Jack? Uh, Dave Eustace has been uh, Kieran Ma's uh, partner, um, a training partner for a couple of years, a few years. Um, he's an English fellow um, uh, and his uncle trained here in Hong Kong and he accepted an invitation. Um, I think he's, so he's already left the uh, Kieran Ma partnership. Um, uh, David's going to train. Um, he'll get a series of boxes up here in Hong Kong um, and we'll be trained here. Um, and what the <laughs> Racing Victoria have done is said, okay, uh, all of the wins that you had, and at the moment the partnership is 21, 20 wins or so in front of the Hayes Boys partnership, um, you go back to zero. None of those count towards the premiership. Now, the trainers' premiership, isn't it called the FW Hoisted Trophy, Jack? I think it is, yes. There you go. We were famous once. 
Um, uh, that's so, just so it's, it, it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. Mm, um, 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 just just to explain, it was Fred. Fred Hoisted, who was a wonderful jockey, didn't take any shit from the stewards, and um, and became uh, became a very very uh, uh, successful trainer in the mainly in the forties and fifties, I think, Jack, wasn't it? And, and a lot of jumps jumps races. Oh, there weren't I, too many that he didn't win. I think he won his first premiership in uh, yeah, in the nineteen twenties, yeah. and, and his last one in nineteen sixty. Yeah, okay, one about eighteen of them, and I think that last one in nineteen sixty. <laughs> I think uh, Bob and Bond would have been doing most of the legwork at that time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, uh, look that uh, that takes us out with sport. What do you got? What do you got for us? That's really stupid, no, Jack. Nothing silly. No, nothing silly. Nothing silly nothing, happened this week. Nothing. I just say this: they're doing a COVID inquiry in the UK, and it was down in London, and now it's gone up to um, to Scotland. Uh, and all the way through this, there's been a lot of um, uh, argument about whether ministers and, and prime ministers and you know, uh, senior ministers, as they're called in Scotland, um, have to disclose their WhatsApp um, uh, record. And traditionally in these sort of governments, if you have a meeting, someone takes notes and that's recorded and that ought to be discoverable. But I would think some of these WhatsApp conversations are more like corridor conversations or a quick chat you have over a drink at the end of the night, and they were never recorded. So how do we draw the line now in the digital age to say this must be kept, this must be recorded, and that can just be ignored because it's a throwaway line as we're having a beer, as we're having a beer at the end of the day? Well... Let me help you out there, Jack. Whether it's Twitter or WhatsApp, you actually in your settings. If you're an MP or a public figure, uh, and I do this with my Twitter, um, you you set it to basically delete all, all previous messages after a period of time, and you can set that yeah. period of time. And that's what if you're in the business of, of representative politics, you should be doing every time. Yeah, all right. Yeah, you uh, could that be takes right. us out. Uh, from the two jacks for uh, the 1st of February 2024. Uh, we do love getting your uh, letters, your correspondence, your thoughts, your comments. Uh, so please drop us a line. Uh, you can get hold of me uh, through Twitter, as I said. Uh, get, do, it, do it fast because it might dissolve after about a couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> now, now we know. <laughs> but uh, my DMs are always open. You can hit me up on at Jack the Insider uh, on Twitter. And Jack, uh, Hong Kong Jack, that is, if you want to get hold of him, he's got his substack there and that address is... HongKongJack.substack.com. Well, thank you very much, listeners, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. And we'll be back next week. Cheers, Jack. Thanks for your time, and we'll see you later, listeners.